This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday afternoon, so I think everybody would have had enough time to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Cam wants to know if there's any way to enable light gun support for an original NES on a modern TV. So not really and kind of sort of. A while back, there was somebody who did a mod that was a patch for NES ROMs that allowed it to sync up with kind of a cheap knockoff light gun on flat panels. I demoed it. Uh, It worked okay. Um, I I know there's been some updates since then, and there are patches for multiple games. Or if you want to use original carts, I believe Hyperkin released an adapter just for Duck Hunt. But that was kind of cool. And if you're just looking to have some fun, that would definitely be it. But if you really were only using modern flat panel technology, not CRTs at all, and you wanted to experience light gun games, I really think that software emulation is going to be the best way to go about doing it. Uh, I think the next best would probably be the Mister, although I've had problems with the GunCon 2 uh, stuff with that. But, you know, it could have just been me. There could be other stuff out there. So basically any kind of emulation, hardware or software, I think would make life a lot easier to do that. Uh, And, of course, if you have a Wii, you could try to use the Wiimote and a soft mod for that stuff too. That always worked pretty good. So if you... If you want to try those patches, go for it. You're going to want to buy that specific Tomy light gun that's linked in the post. I'll link it here for you. And give it a shot. If you have an EverDrive, then it should work fine. And then if it, you know, if it ends up working well for you, awesome. And if not, maybe just look into some more software emulation solutions. Next, Steve Wells wants to know if I've tried using the NVIDIA RTX voice noise filtering app uh, to try to get rid of the background noise as opposed to what else I'm doing. I have, but my workflow is kind of interesting. I've experimented with it, but it doesn't always work as good as processing it elsewhere. So I'll just run through my setup really quick. I have this boom mic, which is, you know, four fists away from my face, I guess. is probably the best way to describe it. So the volume is going to need to be boosted afterwards as well as filtered, because since it's a boom mic, it's the DDS mic, which I have linked to all of that stuff in my Amazon store. Uh, Rather than that mic that I had that was right up against my face, it's going to pick up a lot of other noise as well. I kind of like just talking like this without a giant thing in front of me, but uh, and I, I feel like I sound a little more natural through this, but it requires a lot of processing. So when I record, in order to keep this workflow going so I'm able to put out three videos a week, otherwise I absolutely wouldn't, that DDS mic goes into a Motu M4 uh, directly into a computer. The Lumix GH5 goes into either a Live Gamer 4K or a Live Gamer Bolt, depending on my mood and what I've been testing. And all of those are recorded right in OBS. When I'm done, I separate the audio and filter it. Through, well, I throw everything in Premiere and then export just the audio. So it's just one track that gets exported. Each one of these sections are pieced together. Uh, and then I run that through Isotope Ozone and their, their noise filtering. So it's the one that scans and filters the noise. Then I run their normalized process, 
and then I go into Adobe Audition and use their compression, specifically the broadcast compression uh, setting. The only reason I move over to Premiere is because I haven't found an equivalent in uh, Isotope. If you know of one, anybody, please let me know. Somebody was kind enough to send me a PDF a while back, but it wasn't nearly as easy as just press one button like with Adobe Audition. And, you know, how fast I can get through these absolutely affects how many I could do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do three videos a week. So uh, that that's basically my workflow now. Now, the downsides of that are um, that in, it doesn't always work as well as real-time processing. So the RTX voice plugin to OBS is something that works in real-time for noise reduction. And when it works, it works great, but it also kind of changes the sound of your voice. You get a little of that compression uh, garbly thing going on. So while I do specifically remember our, our stream professor, Epos Fox, saying that he recommends always doing the filtering in real time, uh, if you have the ability to, I thought he meant that in the context of streamers. Because if I do a live stream, it's impossible to filter the audio afterwards unless I would re-upload it as a different video, which I don't really like to do. So you're right in that I should be using RTX voice and some other you know, volume boosting stuff for live streams. But for this, if I filter it out using RTX voice, I could still do normalize in Isotope and broadcast compression in Audition, but it will also normalize and compress the filtering of RTX voice, which sometimes is perfect and sometimes is not. So I honestly don't know what's the what's the lesser of the two evils. Because when I do it the way I've been doing it, the way I'm doing it today, unless you're in a very quiet space, you can't really hear the background noise, especially if you're driving or if you're on a subway or walking to work in a city. Like Your own white noise in the background is going to blend in with that. But if you're listening in a quiet office or with headphones in a room where it's not much background noise, then yeah, it picks up a lot of background noise. It's annoying. But what would be worse, that or whatever RTX voice would do mixed with my other process? So if you have any thoughts, please let me know. I love having these discussions. I'm never satisfied. I always want to try to get the audio a little bit better. I want to seem a little bit more professional. But at the same time, I have to be able to fit it in my work schedule. So I can't just sit there and spend two hours processing audio for every time I do a podcast. And at the same time, too, I really enjoy making a lot of these, especially the two. Actually, you know, the three weeklies recently have been podcast, Q&A and the roundup. I like these to feel like I'm just hanging out talking to you. I don't like I didn't like the mic right in front of my face. I didn't like that. You know, here is your weekly retro news. Like, that's never been me. I'm just a fat dude with a webcam that wants to hang out and talk with my friends. And I want it to feel like that. Uh, the fancier videos, of course, I want it as pro as possible, but no matter what, I want to at least continue to filter audio better and make it a better experience for people listening. So I'm all ears. Thanks for the question and the suggestion, and maybe I'll try it on next week's Q&A just for the heck of it to see. Seacon is looking to do mods like the NES RGB and GBS control, and they were wondering if there's any updates to my list of suggested desoldering tools. The ZD915 seems to have been superseded by the ProKits SS-331H. I haven't really heard that. Um, but there are also cheap pump-action solder suckers built into soldering irons that get decent YouTube reviews. And they could also potentially get a Heiko desoldering station from Japan for half the price, but it's rated for 100 volts, so it would likely require a transformer. Please let me know if you have any ideas. So I have a few. 
First, I am a, a paranoid, untrustworthy nerd when it comes to my software and hardware tools, just because I've done the wrong thing so many times. And I've told the story a million times, so I'll skip to the end, but I bought one of those gun-only desoldering irons because I thought I was being slick saving some space rather than having the, you know, this DD915 with the big thing next to it, you know, the, the station itself. And I ruined a couple of motherboards. And the moment I switched over to the ZD915, I'm sure it's not the best desoldering station in the world, but I was immediately desoldering just like Voltar and Jose have been trying to show me for a few years before that. You know, that whole business of sitting there for an hour with the desoldering gun, well, it didn't happen anymore. I, I just followed their instructions and it, it came out just like they did. It was super easy. It worked. So I'm always hesitant to suggest anything that I haven't tried or trusted people who do this all day long have tried. So you say it was superseded by a different one. I haven't heard that at all. If you're right, then I guess it should be equal to or better than quality. But I haven't heard that yet. And I still know a few people that have purchased the ZD915s the past six months or so that say they're totally fine. As for... Uh, solder suckers built into soldering irons, they're usually trash. And please don't forget that you just because it has a good YouTube review doesn't necessarily mean anything. In the retro gaming world, I've run into a bunch of people who were paid to do reviews of terrible products. And then when I do the real review, instead of just being like, oh, well, they come after me to try to, well, Bob's just lying for attention. No, I actually review things. I'm not paid to review them to give a good review. So I'm not, you know... I'm not throwing stones here. I'm just being honest. So unless it's a YouTuber that you've been following and they've earned your trust, I would immediately just have all of the red flags up, especially when it comes to mostly trash products like that. That said, if you're doing something like you're only going to do one NES RGB mod, your own, and you're doing a GBS control mod, getting one of those irons with a solder sucker built in for like 15, 20 bucks, you'll be able to do it. It might take you two hours, but you could do it. You need some patience. You need flux. You need to uh, pre-tin all of the pins, even though there's already solder on them. You want to re-tin all of them. You absolutely could do it, and you would save a bunch of money doing it that way. But if you plan on doing anything else but that, I would suggest getting something else. And I'm going to continue to suggest the ZD915 just because, once again, you know, I got trust issues. Unless I see it or people I know who do it all day long see it, then I just uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable um, recommending anything else. So if you want to try something else, by all means, go for it. And, you know, please report back and let us know what you found. But I just my own personal recommendation I can't give unless I've tested it myself um, or unless it comes down the line from people smarter and, and better than me at this stuff anyway. So uh, hopefully hopefully that was a good enough answer. I didn't mean any negativity by it. If I had to sum it up, I would just say just get the ZD915 because you, you want to be safe with that and get it from Amazon so that if it shows up and you don't like it, you just return it. Oliver Menard was just following up on their previous discussion of how to get old thermal paste off and they're suggesting Articlean. And I looked it up. I have links to it. I'm going to purchase it as soon as I'm done shooting this podcast. And I'm really appreciative for the recommendation because I've been using isopropyl and like cotton pads, the the kind that don't leave off any, you know, that, that don't leave any stuff behind. And it usually takes forever to clean it up. And it, it gets to the point, too, where you just keep wiping and wiping and you still get the silver bits. And 
you know, it's probably the microscopic bits in the pores of the metal. So maybe using Articlean is just a much easier way to do that. Do that, let it dry, um, and then put on some thermal paste. So I found two links, uh, one of just the Articlean and one Articlean plus Arctic Silver, uh, which I think would be neat if you don't have any. Now you could have everything you need to clean up your old heat sinks. So thanks very much for the recommendation. I'll definitely give it a try. Zachary Van Lulling said, do I think we'll ever see a Philips CDI optical drive emulator? Who should I be begging to develop one? So I don't know if there's anybody who's aiming to tackle that exact problem right now. However, there's definitely people out there who are looking to the much bigger picture of full CD-ROM emulation. So you, it would still need to be tackled console by console, but it's also coming from a way where it would be much easier once this main design is done to port it to different platforms. And my guess, just a guess here, is after that happens, we'll start to see ODEs pop up for everything, pretty much. Uh, it'll be one of those things where maybe maybe the product isn't open source, but the the guides to interface everything together might be. So that way, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm kind of talking out my ass here, but I'm it's it's coming from some knowledge. So I'm not just making stuff up. But I think if that happens, I think I'm pretty confident it will. I think that's when we're going to start to see those. So the short answer to your question: Do I think we'll ever see one? Yeah, a couple of years probably. Hope I'm wrong. Hope it's sooner. Who should I be begging to develop one? Nobody that I'm not already begging on a regular basis anyway. And also, thank you so much for the kind words. I'm really happy to meet you uh, and see everybody at Retro World Expo. I really do love meeting people there. And I know that, you know, some people are a little easier just walking up to people and talking like me, a big mouthy ham. And then other people just kind of like, chill back for a while and you know they're more polite and whenever i see people like that I'm, I'm not saying you're either one zachary i'm just you know in general i just try to make everybody feel welcome and even if i'm in the middle of another conversation i'll wave and call somebody over and try to make them part of the conversation and i just think it's awesome that people would want to come and hang out and talk about this stuff so thank you for coming over thanks to everybody that came over and uh you know continue to go to expos because it's really cool to hang out with everybody in person Adam Adam Ant has a question about installing the NES RGB kit. They're looking for a way to use a Genesis 2 cable, and the kit uses an 8-pin mini-DIN, but the Genesis 2 is a 9-pin mini-DIN, so how would they go about doing that? So this is both easy and hard. The easy answer is you simply configure the NES RGB to output the same way and the same type of signal that a Genesis 2 would output, which is technically wrong. Because without going into the whole spiel again, don't forget that Sega did not include resistors and capacitors on the RGB lines in Genesis consoles. And it was the right move, because back in the 90s, the people, late 80s and 90s, the percentage of people using RGB was so small, they would have lost millions of dollars just by including those components in every single unit sold. So they opted to use those components in the cable to finish the circuit which definitely was the right move then, not the right move for us now. So here's the hard part. How do you make the NES RGB output that way then? And it's been so long that I totally forgot. I don't know if you need an external board. I don't know if you could just remove components on the NES RGB, uh, but I would just kind of look into that and see, uh, and, and talk to people who've done it before. And if it starts to get a little over your head, and I mean that with respect, 
But I mean, if it's if you start getting a little uncomfortable with what might need to be done, contact whoever you know, some good modders that that have a history of doing stuff like this and know how to support HD retrovision cables, uh, and that will that would probably be the best bet because not only do you need it to output exactly like a Genesis two would, but you would also need to make sure that the sync is going over the composite video line. Now the good news is if you do that. Uh, it's just another easy way to use existing cables, but it's it's something that you're going to want to check into. So um, I would just kind of look into that and see what you got and uh, talk to your modder, talk to people on different Discord servers and see what they're doing and kind of decide what's the best choice for you. DW623 said they got a really good deal on an original Xbox that's still fully functional, but they remember hearing from everywhere that one of the capacitors is a major problem. And they're not confident enough in their soldering skills yet to do a full recap, but they want to know how to if that's what they need to do to fix this. Luckily, all you need to do is snip out one problematic cap. And if it's already leaked, which it might have, definitely take some isopropyl and um, any kind of cotton pads or something and try to scrub that out as best as you can. And if the motherboard's been eaten away, you're, you're, I mean, if it's still working, you're probably not at that point yet, but it could have started to eat away a little bit. You want to contact a modder for tips and, and or just look up different tips to see. Check the wiki. I'm sure the wiki has the exact location of these capacitors and stuff like that. But yeah, it's basically just one cap that's notorious for doing it. And while I'm sure Xbox are going to start to need re full recaps at some point, at this point, I think it's only that one that you need to worry about and maybe the internal power supply. But you don't need to be a pro modder to do this. You could just find the problematic one, get some good snips and snip the legs off, clean up the pad, and you don't even need to replace it. All it is is the clock capacitor. So if you leave your Xbox plugged in all the time or you don't mind setting the clock when you turn it on, just snip it. Never worried about it again. Lopo said they have the latest RetroTINK 5X Pro firmware and they were wondering which CRT filter is closest to a mid to late consumer 90 CRT. They grew up with one, but they were born in 2000 and it's long gone and they want a period authentic look. So unfortunately, what you saw as a kid is going to be different for everybody and the size of your TV, the mask, uh, aperture grill or shadow mask, um, you know, what signal you use, was it RF or composite? I mean, there's going to be so many different factors. So what I would do is just go in and look at the different consumer CRT settings in the tank scan lines. And the one trick that I always try to tell people, which try to roll with me on this because it's going to sound so dumb, but you're going to get it once you do it in person. Mess with some scan lines for a little bit just to try to find something cool. Sit close to the TV when you're doing this. And then when you think you have something, go back onto your normal viewing distance on your couch or your chair or whatever. And the whole purpose of adding a scan line mask is so that it cuts through the image just like an original CRT would, but you almost aren't supposed to even notice it's there. So if it's very big and pronounced and that's really all you can see, it's not the right way to do it. It might look awesome for a couple of moments, but if you really want to mimic the look of a CRT, get up close, see if you can kind of get it configured, then sit back. And if it kind of disappears into the image, then then you've won. And that's what I did messing around on my OLED. And I would, I would share my settings, but the TVs that I'm used to, the TV that I'm playing on, I mean, all of those things come into effect. But basically, I was able to get my 60-inch... Um, uh, LG OLED to look incredibly close to 
you know, a decent BVM. And it, it was done in a way where I started to, like, I started to forget I even had the scan lines turned on. And then I was like, well, do I need them? Let me turn them off. And I turn them off and go, oh, crap, no, it looks so much better with them on. So try that. Um, and, you know, I know that sounds weird, but you're going to have to see it for yourself to understand. And if you have any other deeper questions, maybe follow back up. But I think that should get you started. Samson Wick wants to know if anyone's working on a modern Mr. Solution for rotary joysticks like the ones used for Heavy Barrel and Akari Warriors. They know some cores are being updated to support the original SNK LS30s, but they're so expensive and hard to come by that they don't think it's a solution most people can enjoy. They don't believe any of the do-it-yourself projects, such as those that repurpose an optical mouse would be compatible with Mr. Are there any that I've overlooked? That's an excellent question. I don't personally know of one. Um, Somebody could have showed me one and I just forgot. So you could check the Mr. Discord, Mr. Forums. You could kind of talk around. If anybody here knows of one, please let me know. But that's a good uh, suggestion. And that's something that I think a lot of people, a lot more people might be interested in than you might first imagine for stuff like that. So yeah, um, I don't have an answer for you, but I'm glad you asked because maybe people listening could help out. Next up, David Lauer has a pretty interesting setup with a three-monitor solution connected to a main PC. So they have one large 31-inch gateway monitor that's limited to 640 by 480 but looks amazing, so great gaming monitor. But they also have an LCD for their marquee and one as a controls sub-window, which sounds like an awesome setup, by the way. However, they are using... Windows 10, and every once in a while, NVIDIA settings or Windows settings will change the resolution, and then they'll end up messing with the setup. So either the HDMI to VGA adapter freaks out, it sends the wrong resolution, and the monitor won't sync on it, and then they have to kind of mess around with it and get it all tweaked again. So they want to know if they have any recommendations to tackle this problem. Would, you know, what about a downscaler? You know, they're trying to stick with Windows 10 if possible. Unfortunately, I think the only way to truly solve the problem is to switch to something like Groovy Arcade. And check the interview I did with Calamity a while back. We talked a lot about that stuff and about um, you know the different methods of doing it. I have a PC right over there that uh, is my Unraid server that I'm also going to be repurposing as a main PC. So I would love to uh, eventually do a live stream someday showing that off. However... Um, I don't know if that's going to support your multiple uh, multiple monitor setup, and I also don't know if there's anything else. Like you mentioned, support software, whatever you need is available on Linux, but the difference is you don't just click on a file and it installs and creates a nice little icon for you. There's usually a lot more involved in the installation process. Once it's installed, it'll run mostly just like on Windows. Uh, almost anything would, but getting that package installed in Linux is a pain, so... Uh, as far as a downscaler solution goes, you could try to look for used Extron equipment that would go down to 480p. Um, you wouldn't need a GBS control goes down to 15 kilohertz, so that's not something that you would probably need to tackle, um, or that's not something that would would go would fix the problem that you have. You would probably need Extron equipment that could repurpose all of this stuff. But remember, you're you're going to want to keep square pixels, and I don't know how the Extrons are designed for that, so. You could certainly look for cheap equipment used on eBay that might work with downscaling, but unfortunately, I kind of think you might be stuck just trying Groovy Arcade. Luckily, you could boot it off a USB stick or something, so you could give it a try without messing with your original configuration at all. If it doesn't work, just turn off your computer, pull out the USB stick, but 
yeah, I think that's how I would go about tackling that problem. But I know that's not the answer you wanted, but hopefully I at least pointed you in the right direction. Tomas has a question that I don't have an answer to, but I'm hoping maybe some of you will. Is there any good way to connect optical audio out from PlayStation 2, Xbox, whatever, to modern wireless gaming headsets that connect via a USB dongle? I have no clue what the answer is. However, all of my experience with that has included wireless headset that also has some kind of analog or digital input, not just Bluetooth, not just anything else. Um, I have seen Bluetooth adapters that are designed for this. So you plug whatever device you want into the Bluetooth adapter and then you sync your headphones to it. But if you're talking about something like, you know, any of the modern wireless headsets, I don't really know. So anybody out there have a good solution that the, that they could share with Thomas, please uh, please describe it in the YouTube comments. So if it's like the brand X model one, two, three, don't put a link to like Amazon cause YouTube would kill that. And rightfully so. I think that's one of the few things they get right. Um, so just type out exactly, you know, brand one model X, get this one or something. And it'd be much appreciated because I think a few people might want to know the answer to that question as well. Marco Vizzini said they wanted to purchase a Pi 4 or 400 to play arcade games on a 15 kilohertz RGB SCART CRT, and they found the RGB Dual for Recall Box OS and the RGB Pi for OS 4. The hardware will display native regard, uh, regardless of refresh rates in RGB, and the differences mainly come down to the OS. Can I recommend one over the other? So I did a live stream about this and I don't recommend you watching the whole thing because a lot of it was just me very frustrated that no one's nailed controller mapping support. Uh, so if you wanted to skim through it, I, I'll put a link, but I, I wouldn't recommend sitting through it unless you're really bored and need something on in the background. But what I could tell you from that is that I liked them both. Um, and I, I think that both OSs have their own strengths and, and things that could be improved on. And it really is up to you as to which is the best for you. Now, the one thing I will say is RGB Pi hardware very often has trouble working through any kind of SCART switches. So if you're plugging directly into a CRT, then RGB Pi should be totally great. But if you're plugging through a, like a G-SCART switch or, or a Shinybo switch or anything, you might want to go for the RGB dual. However, you should be able to run either OS on each. You might just have uh, might have to have some basic tweaks on it. So I'm really going to have to put the ball back into your court for this one. However, I just want to remind you once again, if you're going through switches and stuff, you're, you're probably going to want to stick with the dual and uh, only go with RGB Pi if it's direct. I still have no idea why it does that, but it does it. So, oh well. Portugeek is looking into taking newer HDMI devices and displaying them on a CRT. They have both an early 90s CRT with composite video only and an early 2000s flat panel with both composite and component. So this is going to be a, a tough one and you're going to need to break this down as to what you really need and why you want to do it. I'm sure the 2000s flat panel is neat, but it's going to be really laggy and tons of motion blur, most likely, you know, almost all of those are. But if you really wanted to do that, you could just get an HDMI to component converter, set your target device to 640 by 480 or, or 480p, and kind of hope that that works. Um, that's a cheap way to go about doing it, and you might be able to get that to work. You might need different types of downscalers, depending on if your device could output 480p or not. 
and the device might output 720 by 480, meaning if it's a 4x3 panel, you might need to get into the controls and manually stretch it. But that's kind of one that's not too hard, and if you do end up needing any kind of downscaling solution, you could look into used Extron equipment like the, um, like the video I did with Lewis a while back, like the ones I was just mentioning a few questions ago. But the CRT with composite only, that's where you, you're going to go down a rabbit hole because you would need HDMI to RGB your component and then RGB to composite. And then you would want one of those newer devices that has the potentiometer that allows you to dial in uh, or not uh, the variable cap, not potentiometer. I always get that wrong, but the dial that you need to dial in the correct colors or it would look really weird. So you're buying a couple of different devices here um, and you're probably going to be out a hundred bucks total. So unless you know for a fact this is something that's important to you, what I would suggest is just grabbing a super cheap HDMI to composite video converter. Uh, I think I'll link to the live stream and I'm pretty sure I have links to all of that in there, but this will at least allow you to get a sense of if this is something that you'd even really care about. It's got like three frames of rolling latency or something like that, but it's cheap. So get your devices plugged in, let this cheap little thing do the downscaling and kind of just see what you think. And if you get the, the novelty of it, cool. And then if you really want to dig in, that would become a tool that you leave in your toolbox and you have something else. But uh, if you disagree, let me know and I could try to point you in a different direction. But that's kind of what my gut's telling me for these. Couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, um, the first question is on horizontal resolutions on CRTs. They've been told repeatedly that horizontal resolution doesn't matter when CRTs draw an image and they don't understand how this could be the case. So here's the oversimplified version. Um, the CRT is drawing at a frequency. So if you give it 10 pixels to draw, as long as it's going on that frequency, 10 pixels are drawn and, and you know stretched across the screen. But if you give it 10,000 pixels, it will still fill that same space with 10,000 pixels just squished closer together. And that's how you're able to get more detail. That's why things like CPS2 that has a higher, much higher horizontal resolution than like a, your average NES game or something like that. That's why there's, it's technically wider if you have square pixels, but when it's still smushed into four by three, there's just more detail because that same line that you're drawing across the screen is filled with that much more detail. So that's probably the easiest way I could describe it. Um, I check out Displaced Gamers has a video about that. That's probably gonna do a better job than I would. Uh, next is another question CRT related specifically on brightness and tube longevity. They know people generally say to keep brightness and contrast settings low in order to make the tube last longer, but does that only apply to the CRT's own onboard picture controls? For example, is changing the video brightness with options on a video scaler before it goes into the CRT going to be just as damaging long-term? Yes, but I wouldn't worry about it, um, within reason. So the reason I'm saying that is because if you've decided you're going to own this thing and you want to preserve it to make sure that it lasts as long as you can, but you also want to use it. So I would always find that medium area of, okay, um, all the lights are on in my room. It's super bright in here. Does it need to be? I mean, for me personally, I like to, to game in more dimly lit rooms anyway, most of the time, almost all the time, actually. So that's an easy one, right? Turn the lights off in your room, turn the brightness down. Now you've saved a little bit of the life of your tube. However, 
I would never say, okay, well, let me turn all the lights off and, and black out all the windows and, and then turn the brightness all the way down so I could just barely see the screen so my tube will last longer. I'm not saying that's what you said. I'm just making a ridiculous example, but I would never go about it that way. And a good example for me is my D32. It's, you know, one of the, I think it's the best CRT ever made. And I almost never use it because I want it to feel special when I do. But when I do, I never worry about, is the brightness up too high? Am I, you know, am I gaming too long on it? I don't really game for more than a few hours anyway, but when it's time to use it, use it. Um, and that's just my opinion, but it's a very strong one that I have. Lastly, as a fellow unrepentant pirate, what are my recommendations for things like VPN services and torrenting clients? I, believe it or not, have not used an illegal torrent um, or a VPN in years. And when I did, it very often was for things that I already owned, but like my disc cracked or like, I don't, when I, when I brag about being a dirty pirate, I'm talking about old games that haven't been released in 30 years that I've already bought three times anyway. And I'm not shaming anybody. You know, sometimes you're in a position in life where the only way you could get something is by, by downloading a copy of it. So I'm not judging, but I actually have no advice for you whatsoever. I'm kind of interested myself just, just out of curiosity. Um, but I, I just don't use any of that stuff anymore. And, uh, I, I think I'd like to, I think there's certainly some scenarios in which, uh, I could still stay with my, my weird, moral approach of this might be illegal, but I know I didn't do anything wrong, so forget it, who cares? But anybody have any suggestions on that? Uh, I, I, I see a lot of YouTubers pimping some VPN services for money. Maybe they're actually good too. I don't know. And if they are, if they're a good service and people are, are using those as sponsors, come to me. I'll teach you how to use it. Then I'll teach everybody else how to use it and maybe make some bucks on it. Quantum Guitar wants to know if I happen to know if there's any cheaper products to extract eARC and output it as HDMI audio, not optical. I don't know of one, but if anybody does, please let me know because I know a lot of the products that I talked about output ARC, which is basically the same as SPDIF, except eARC would handle a lot more of those higher bandwidth audio signals. So I think that's one of these things where you can get the more expensive stuff now like the HD Fury stuff or whatever else. But the the cheaper stuff is probably coming down the line. And they're probably ramping up production on it. I do really hope that people come out with, uh, these companies come out with more HDMI 2.1 and up devices because that's kind of lackluster at the moment. Um, so I'm not really sure if there's anything out there now, but I do think it's important. Um, their next question, do I know what 1440p or 4K outputting multi-channel capable consoles would be outputting uncompressed audio where a conversion to Dolby Digital over regular optical would be detrimental? So basically the question is, if you're going from HDMI from like, uh, or, or if you're playing original consoles from PS3 era and before, you're not really going to get... Uh, super high-end uncompressed audio, but maybe you would on some more modern games on more modern consoles. So um, what consoles would be outputting, um, what would be outputting that? And I think that higher-end audio started in the PS4 era. Please correct me if I'm wrong. This is definitely something that would be more of a digital foundry question. So what I'm about to say is mostly guessing, but I would just look for 7.1 audio or any Dolby Atmos or anything like that. If you see games with those logos, that's probably where you're, uh, you're going to start to get audio compression if you have to use it over SPDIF. So, um, 
Now, once again, I, I like to be very clear when I'm speculating, and that is speculation. I think that's a good guess, though, so I would kind of start with that and go from there. But if uh, anybody has cheap eARC stuff, please post uh, descriptions of it because links are going to get caught. But I would, I would love to check some of those out myself as well. Before I go, have you purchased a ticket from StubHub that showed up as a physical ticket for a concert that's been rescheduled? If so, you have to listen to what I'm about to warn you about. And if not, drop off. There's not going to be anything after it, and it might bore you to death. But if you have, here's what happened to me the other day. Right, uh, think early 2020, maybe late 2019, whenever tickets for Rammstein's U.S. stadium tour went up for sale, I went to go purchase, and they immediately sold out of the front general admission pit area. And anybody who's seen them live, I think I've seen them two or three times, knows that they light everything on fire. So I want to be as close as possible. If I'm, if my eyebrows aren't singed, it's not the Rammstein experience. So I went on StubHub and I bought scalped tickets. And I paid like 100 bucks ever, over, so whatever, 275 And those tickets were mailed to me. The original ticket purchaser got them from Ticketmaster and they mailed them to me. And then at some point or another, I bought two, two regular general admission tickets from Ticketmaster because a couple of my friends wanted to go as well, but they didn't care how close they were. So I bought those for myself also through Ticketmaster. So I swear this is all going to come together at the end. So tickets are mailed to me. Funny enough, they were actually mailed to my old Stanford address. And luckily, the person who lives there now was nice enough to open it up, see $275 call StubHub, and they gave her my number. So whoever this person is who's living in my old apartment, you are the best. Thank you, because that's a lot of money to just lose. However, the world shuts down, the concerts are rescheduled, and this week it was pouring rain all the beginning of the week, so the friends that originally wanted to come with me to the concert, you know, long those situations have long changed, and no one else wanted to stand there in the rain. So I sold the digital tickets on StubHub. And how that worked is you basically go in, you list them, and then as soon as they're sold, you log into your Ticketmaster account and then do a digital transfer to the first name, last name, and email of the person buying them. And because I always try to put myself in somebody else's shoes, the moment those tickets sold, I grabbed my phone, copied and pasted the email, and transferred them right over. Uh, so the digital side is fine, and that is exactly what happened to a lot of people. They bought their tickets digitally. The ticket just appears on your uh, StubHub app. You're good to go. So then I get to the concert on Tuesday night. I'm standing in line, and they I actually put the ticket in a Ziploc bag. I saved the ticket just out of, uh, out of shame, actually. But I had this in a Ziploc bag, and that kept scanning as invalid. So I took it out of the bag. Then they send me over to the ticket booth and they're like, this is not a problem. This happens all the time. I wait in, the, in line at the ticket booth for like 20, 30 minutes and everybody in line is having a StubHub problem. Slightly different, but everybody. So get up to the ticket booth and everybody at the, at the stadium was really polite, but the bottom line is not our problem. Call StubHub. I get on the phone. And I'm always super, super nice to the customer service reps because I always try to put myself in their position. And this was burned into my brain by a friend that like shamed me for being rude to somebody once. And they were right. I shouldn't have been. So I was super kiss-assy polite. But here's the story that I got out of them. When the, t when the concert was rescheduled, Ticketmaster resent an original ticket to the original purchaser of them not me because the ticket was physical it wasn't transferred digitally so 
there's so many problems with this. If that person, like, if that person has not purchased a Ticketmaster ticket since two plus years ago, two and a half years ago, then it would have been sent to that address. Who knows if they're still living there? Did they move? Are they still alive? So right off the bat, that original ticket holder might not have even gotten the ticket. And let's say they did. Let's say they got the ticket and they're like, oh, okay, that's right. I remember selling this one. Um, let me put it in the mail and resend it to the person. I've moved like twice since then. So no, uh, once, once since then, but it was the original address and that. So that is also a fail. Or what if they were a scumbag and said, oh, they sent me another ticket. Now I'll sell this one because it's got the new date on it. I don't think that's what happened. I think it was the first one. I don't, it's most likely that the original purchaser just never got the ticket at all. So when this happens, you're totally screwed. Now, what they tried to do to solve this was say, open up your phone, scroll through any tickets, and we'll just give you one of these for free. So luckily there was one in general admission, so I still got to be in there, but it wasn't the same. So I clicked on it, I clicked buy, and I did this while I'm on the phone with a customer service rep who's being very patient, and very helpful. And they said, okay, that went through. So now we have to wait for the original person to transfer it. Just like I had done the previous night when I sold them. I didn't realize, and I'm, mind you, I'm standing out in the rain right now. I'm just, I'm soaked through my clothes. All my fingers are pruned. I'm not even getting to watch the show. I'm not drying off on the pyrotechnics or anything. And I was like, well, wait a minute. You want me to stand out here in the rain and hope that somebody who may very well be in that concert checks their phone and then goes through and copies and pastes and adds stuff in. And they're like, yeah, that's the only way. So I stood outside and the opening music comes on and I get immediately super depressed because I'm here, I'm soaked and I can't even hear my favorite bands in flames, but no offense. I have, I have a feeling that people in, in flames might even agree. Rammstein is one of the greatest, if not the greatest live acts ever. If you like that kind of music, even if you don't throw in some earplugs and go watch them light everything on fire, you still might be entertained by it. So I'm sitting outside listening. I'm getting super bummed out and I keep, keep, you know, uh, refreshing my phone. I call StubHub back once again, I'm polite. Hey, I'm not mad at you, but you know, this happened. It's obviously an issue because every single person who has a physical ticket for a rescheduled show is affected. And the thing that really upset me is this isn't like my stupid band playing a local bar. This is a nationwide stadium tour that hundreds of thousands of people attended. So this isn't something that should have been overlooked. There should be an easy way for you to go in and say, all right, let me regenerate that ticket digitally. You know, and I did go onto the StubHub app the day before and everything, and they basically said there's nothing you could do because you know it was a mail ticket, so just bring that with you. So unfortunately, the person on the phone was like, there's nothing else we could do. We could give you a different ticket, but then you'd have to wait for that person to then, you know, to, to get the email and to, to digital transfer. So I, I drove away and later that evening, like another half hour later, I got the notice that it was transferred. So either some person, some poor person was in there watching the show and stopped to transfer their ticket. Not their fault if that was the case, right? If I were them, I wouldn't be paying attention to my phone. I'd be paying attention to the band. Um, but I was already on my way home. So now, I, now they did automatically refund me the 275 for the ticket. 
However, between tolls, gas, and $40 parking at the stadium, holy crap, if I knew it was 40 bucks, I don't know if I would have gone alone. I would have taken a bus in or something for 2 bucks, but I'm basically out an extra 100 bucks and many, many hours of sitting in traffic in the pouring rain for this, which is why I wanted to waste time telling you. Now, don't be pissed. I warned you in the beginning, if you don't have physical tickets you bought from StubHub, this probably is meaningless to you. But if you do, I really hope that you sat through the end of this, because this is not about me complaining. Um, This is really about making sure if you have your physical ticket that was mailed to you that says the date of Thursday, September 10, 2020 is when I should have gone. If you have the original ticket, you have to contact Ticketmaster, StubHub, and everywhere else to get the updated ticket. Otherwise, you will be just as screwed as I am. The only positive thing I could say about this is I have seen Rammstein twice uh, I loved it both times. I think I think it might have been three times. I believe it was three, but I, either way, I've seen it before. I love them. I bought their Blu-rays. I am so happy that this happened to me and not some teenager that wanted to see their favorite band who maybe they saved up their money and bought... Because I considered selling this one, too. When it was raining that bad, I'm like, I haven't been feeling well. I think I'm a little bit into burnout. And I was like, screw it. I'll get sick for Rammstein. That'll be worth it. Uh, but if I had sold that ticket, I mean, that would have been terrible because what if somebody's never seen it before? What if they had their parents drop them off and they're coming to pick them back up at 11 and they were just standing in the parking lot the whole time? Like, I'm glad it happened to me where I was able to handle this and where the hundred bucks that I lost on everything else stings, but it also is not going to bankrupt me. Whereas if I were a kid losing that extra hundred bucks, it would have been a massive deal. It still stings now, but not as bad as it would have if I was like 16 or 17. So I'm glad it was me and not somebody else that that didn't have it as easy as I did, relatively speaking. Uh, Very cool that all of the StubHub reps were as nice as possible, but it's not the StubHub reps problem. StubHub corporate severely screwed this one up. So you will be affected if you fall into that category. So call them and, you know, try to be polite. The second time I called too... Uh, the person I talked to, like, do you have your order number? I'm like, my phone is so soaked, I can't see anything. By the way, do you hear that screaming? And he's like, I do, actually. I'm like, that is three other people on the phone with StubHub right now, really pissed. And right as I paused, there was some some woman, you know, 10 feet away from me, and she's screaming, what do you mean, wait for the ticket? They're playing now. Like, <laughs> was, there was a lot of angry people at StubHub, and rightfully so. Uh, so if you have one of these tickets, please be warned. Uh, and don't end up ruining your whole night like I did. So uh, thanks for your patience. I wanted to get the word out. Well, that's it for this time. If you're still here after that long rant, hopefully it was helpful or you enjoyed laughing at me that I got stuck out in the rain. Both are fine. Uh, If you're new to these Q&As, though, please ask whatever question that you want to ask in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what is a new question on an older post. Plus, I really enjoy doing it like you see me doing it here, just scrolling through in real time, just kind of laid back and answering them as they come. So... Also, most importantly, thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, because without you, none of these videos could happen, none of the behind-the-scenes research and development, and none of the very cool upcoming stuff that I have in the pipeline. So thank you all very much. Please spread the word about it, because it's the only way to keep going is growing. So please keep spreading the word. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next week.